Hey, welcome to our online sermons at Coastal Community Church. So glad that uh, you're checking these sermons out on our internet and, and on our website. And so I want to welcome you. And, and I do want to encourage you that these sermons, online sermons, should be a supplement to your spiritual growth. But one of the things that we're big believers in at Coastal Community Church and uh, want to encourage you is to find a home church uh, where you can not only grow in teaching, but also grow in community with other believers. So if you don't have a home church near you and you live in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love to invite you to Coastal Community Church. We just recently moved uh, to 101 Village Avenue. We have two services, uh, 915 and 11, and we'd love for you to check out one of our services here in the community. Over the summer, uh, a lot of changes going on at Coastal Community Church. We're changing locations, and, and part of what we wanted to focus on in the summer as we move into our new location is to remind us of the one thing that doesn't change and won't change at Coastal, and that's that we wanted to lift up the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews is the perfect letter to remind us that Jesus is greater than anything we could imagine. And so I hope you'll join us and enjoy this sermon called Greater Than. Good morning, Coastal. I can walk under this without ducking at all. So tall. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joey. And we're so glad that you guys have uh, decided to worship with us this morning. Um, I want to preach a bit differently than I normally do. Uh, I have one week to get through Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, as I started studying and wrestling with the sermon, I figured that I needed about uh, a good four weeks in order for us to, to get this passage the way that I would want us to, uh, to get it. So what I'm going to do is give us a, a bird's eye view of Hebrews chapter 7. And I'm going to trust that you guys are gonna study and do the legwork on your own. Um, Hebrews 7, yes, Hebrew, one, one woo there. The Hebrews chapter 7, it's really a, a reintroduction um, to the major theme of this particular book. Um, and it's helpful to think of Hebrews um, more like a, a sermon or uh, because the, the Hebraic author really is exhorting um, and urging uh, the believers in the Hebraic church to persevere in their faith and to savor who God is for them in Jesus. That's, that's really the main thrust of, uh, of the book of Hebrews. And Pastor Andrew is going to talk about that in the coming week, so I won't spend a whole lot of time there. But in chapter 7, the author is also, he's revisiting someone that he's mentioned a couple of times uh, prior to chapter 7 in Hebrews. And that's a man by the name of Melchizedek. And there's probably a lot of people in this room that are wondering, what's a Melchizedek? And hopefully by the end of this sermon, you'll be able to answer that question. But he mentions him in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, and then later in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. And uh, just to read one of those verses to you brief, briefly here, Hebrews 5, 10 says, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then from, from chapter five to around six is sort of a digression uh, by the Hebraic author on the particulars of salvation. And Pastor Sean has done an excellent job over the last couple of weeks exhorting us to take the salvation that, that God through Christ has provided for us, to take that seriously. And so now he's, he's returning to the main theme of this book in Hebrews chapter seven, which is my main theme this morning, and if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write it down. It's Christ is the superior and eternal high priest. Therefore, his people 
are not consumed. That excites me. Does that excite you? Let me read it one more time. Christ is the superior and eternal high priest. Therefore, his people are not consumed. And the Bible really is a, it's, it's a unique book, right? It, it's, it's 66 books that are all telling the story of how God loves to save rebellious people. And Hebrews chapter seven is no exception to that. Now, in order for us to understand this passage of scripture, we need to understand a, a theological word and that word is typology. You'll find that in your notes. And I would encourage you to write this definition of typology down. Typology is simply an Old Testament picture of the person and work of Christ. Typology is simply an Old Testament picture of the person and work of Christ. And again, we're gonna look from a bird's eye view at, at a high priest and king in the Old Testament named Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll have a grasp on the identity of Melchizedek, why he matters, and the importance of Jesus Christ as our eternal high priest. And so let me pray for our time together before we open the word of God, and uh, then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful for such a high priest as Jesus Christ. Eternally interceding on our behalf before you. And so thank you that we were reminded of that through song. And I pray this morning that we would be reminded of that through your word, through the preaching of your word. God, I pray for the unbeliever in the room this morning. I pray Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and they, they, would, they would see the great Savior we have in Christ. And for the believer in the room this morning, Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, that, that this message, Lord, looking through Hebrews chapter seven would encourage us, edify us, and, 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 and remind us of the confidence that we can have in our salvation because it's based only on the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now with the time that we have this morning, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break the message up into three sections and I'm only gonna read the sections that are relevant to, to, to what I wanna point out to you as we work our way through Hebrews chapter seven. Again, I would encourage you, uh, a great Sunday afternoon activity to do with your family would be to go home and, and read Hebrews chapter seven in its entirety. And, and I promise that the message will take on a, uh, a whole, you'll see it in a whole new light after doing that. But look with me in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter seven. The author says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay, this passage of scripture is, uh, it's an explanation or a commentary, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 14. And briefly, it says this, after his return from the, the, the defeat of Hedelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, 
that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And there's several things that I, I'd, I'd like for you to take note of in this passage, and I'm going to bring out their relevance uh, as we go along. And Lord willing, this, this sermon will become more practical as we move along. But it's important for us to understand the identity of Melchizedek in order to understand Hebrews chapter 7, um, at, or really the book of Hebrews at all. Um, the first thing we need to understand about Melchizedek is he's the first person, he's the first person to be called a priest in the Old Testament, and his priesthood is unique. Melchizedek is the first person to be called a priest in the Old Testament, and his priesthood is unique. And not only is Melchizedek called a priest, but he's a priest of, the, of God Most High, and he has the authority to bless Abraham, right? Why does this matter to us, right? He, he, Melchizedek is unique because his priesthood, much like the priesthood of Christ, is outside of the Levitical priesthood and it comes centuries before the line of priests is established by Aaron at Mount Sinai. In other words, Melchizedek's priesthood, like Jesus's priesthood, is fully outside the stream of Old Testament salvation history. Hebrews 7, 6 reaffirms this when it says, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Right, this is the significance of verse three in our text when it says that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy and has neither the beginning of days nor the end of life. Right, it, it, it does not mean that Melchizedek was eternal. Right, it, it doesn't mean that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ, but it does mean that his kingship and his priesthood were unique, much like the, the kingship and the priesthood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't, have, we don't have documentation, careful documentation about Melchizedek. So we don't know where he came from. Well, he's unlike any other king or priest in the Old Testament, but Abraham responds to his kingship and his priesthood by offering him a tenth of his plunder, a tenth from everything he had, he had taken in battle. So Abraham, he understood that Melchizedek was a king and a high priest of Yahweh when he, when he came up on him. And the Hebraic author in Hebrews chapter seven, in this sermon that he's given, he understands the significance of this and he uses this to illustrate, to help us understand the importance of Christ's high priestly role. So when Pastor Sean tells us that it's important for us to understand the Old Testament, especially the, the first five books of the Bible in order to understand and appreciate the book of Hebrews, this is what he means. And so for our purpose... Our purpose is let's seek to understand why Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and I promise we'll get more practical as we move along. First is his name and title. Okay, the name and title of Melchizedek, king of righteousness and king of peace. The author of Hebrews identifies Melchizedek as king of righteousness, which is his name, and king of Salem, which is his title, king of peace. And I think the author might have recognized his character as such. That's why he compares him to Christ. Both priest and righteousness, they, they have these, these messianic implications. 
right? And, and he's already given that to us at the beginning of, of Hebrews in chapter one, when it says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companies. And I know that I said oil like a Georgian and not oil. But furthermore, Melchizedek is, he's, he's without father, mother, or genealogy, right? He's, he's like Christ in the sense that his kingship and his priesthood, as I said earlier, are outside of the typical priestly qualifications. And although Melchizedek could not have qualified for the Levitical priesthood, he was a priest of the most high God, and Abraham recognized this. So in this, Melchizedek, he foreshadows Christ's priestly work, which is quite different and praise God quite better than the Levitical priesthood. Melchizedek, he has no beginning of days or end of life. His priesthood continues forever. The significance of this is not that Melchizedek, like I said, is eternal like Christ, but that there's no priestly ancestry and no line of succession of priesthood, much like that of Christ's priesthood. And the point here is that Christ is unrestricted in his priestly work. He's unrestricted. Right? Christ's high priestly work has no beginning and it has no end. He's our great high priest forever. Doesn't that bring you comfort this morning? Right? We don't have to go to a priest so that he can go to God on our behalf. Jesus is our only eternal high priest. And Melchizedek, he resembles Jesus Christ. He resembles the son of God, right? That's the without father or mother, it says, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. He resembles Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not resemble Melchizedek. It would be improper for us to think that Melchizedek came before Christ just because he's in the Old Testament, right? As Christians, we confess that Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is eternal. Melchizedek came before Jesus wrapped himself in flesh, before God was in flesh, right? but he didn't come before Christ's deity. Christ is eternal. Colossians 1 reaffirms that. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold Together, Jesus is before Melchizedek. Melchizedek is before Christ's incarnation, but not his deity. So the next time someone asks you, what's a Melchizedek? Hopefully, you'll have the answer to that question, okay? So again, think of the Hebraic author uh, helping his audience, and I think in sermon fashion, savor who God is for them in Christ Jesus. And I hope it's not boring for you to contemplate this. Right, the author of Hebrews, he's making a case that Jesus is God and that he's our eternal high priest who intercedes for us forever. And I think of it as, as an author giving um, us credentials by showing us the, the, the deficiencies in the top guys. Right? He, he, and he does this in an effort to increase your confidence in, in Jesus as our high priest. Right? Think of somebody that you deeply respect this morning. Maybe it's somebody that, that you, you value their opinion. Maybe it's someone that um, you're always asking for advice from. You know, maybe, maybe it's somebody that you, you want to model your life after. 
Now, now think about this. Maybe it's someone, that same person has been someone that's disappointed you. And if they haven't, they, they soon will disappoint you. Right? Every, every single person on the face of this planet will let you down. But Christ will never let us down. Right? The author of Hebrews is saying that even the greatest of all of creation falls utterly short when compared to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, worship him. That's what he's saying. That's what he's reminding us of. That's why he's, he's bringing up Melchizedek in the first place. He's saying Melchizedek, who, who was outside of the lineage of the typical Levitical priesthood that Abraham came, Abraham recognized his greatness and tithed to him. And he had the authority to bless Abraham. Jesus is greater than him. He's greater than him. As a matter of fact, he was a type of Christ. He, he was a foreshadowing of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the, 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 the high priesthood. So let's move on to the more practical sections of Hebrews chapter seven. Verse 11 and verse 18 says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And then verse 18 says, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A few notes for us this morning on that. Perfection is not attainable through the law. Perfection is not attainable through the law. I don't know if that's shocking to some of you that, that may be here this morning. And if you're a Christian, you understand this, Amen. Perfection is not attainable through the law. So where does this leave us and what can we do about it? Right, it's here that we understand that the, the deficiency of the law in regards to salvation. And now we're, we're conditioned to believe, at least we should be conditioned to believe that, 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 that you work hard and you're paid for your labors, right? And the, the Lord established work and labor before the fall of man in the Genesis account and he declared it to be good. Work, labor, being paid for your work and your labor, that's a very good thing. But a major dilemma that we have as broken people is, is when we sinfully strive to, to carry this over into our salvation. And many times it can creep in, even as a believer, it can creep in unnoticed. Right? There are many people that believe that if they live a good life and, and they do good to others and they strive to keep the law, then, then surely God will look at them and be satisfied with their effort. Right? The, the, our hope is, is that the scale of our good works will somehow outweigh the scale of our bad works. And certainly God will take that in account when we stand before him one day. And the problem is that our best days fall utterly short to God's glorious standard as revealed in his law. Isaiah 64, six says, we have all become like one who's unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And the apostle Paul, he confirms this in Romans chapter three, confirms it in Ephesians two, when he says that we're dead in our trespasses. We come here on Sunday morning and we sing about that kind of stuff, don't we? The reason why we sing about that kind of stuff was you know that God through Christ has taken our trespasses on himself. I've used this illustration before, but imagine there's a dead body laying right here in front of me, right? And I, and I come up on this dead body and I say, hey, you, um, 
you really should go find yourself a, a pair of defibrillators and you should use them on yourself. And then I, I'm shocked that the person doesn't hear me, so I say it again. You know, you should really go find yourself some defibrillators and you should use them on yourself. What are, what are you doing lay, laying there all dead-like on the floor? Right? And the, the problem is, is that this person's dead, right? It's a ridiculous illustration, I know. But this person's dead. They can't use defibrillators on themselves. That's, that's re- absurd. They need, they need outside intervention, Right? They need somebody to come and use the defibrillators on them. They need me to go get the defibrillators and, and, or somebody else because I don't know how those things work, but somebody needs to come <laughs> and put those things on them and do the job. That's, that's the picture that we have here and that's what the law brings us to, right? The law brings us to a point where we're aware and we say amen with the text, with what the law says about us, with what God says about us, which is that we're completely incapable of bringing ourselves back to life. And so the law of God, it does a couple of things and it does more than what I'm about to give you, but I'm gonna mention two things. And this is especially, this is for the unbeliever, but it's, it, it should be a point of encouragement and a point of reminder for us as believers. We shouldn't get tired of hearing this, but the law of God reveals God's character first and foremost. Right? This, this week, uh, Coastal, Pastor Sean's already made mention of it, but we're starting an equipping and discipleship ministry called Spiritual Formation Class. And, and our prayer is that you'd sign up for one of these three classes and, that we're offering. And if you're a small group leader, consider taking a break for eight weeks and come and be refreshed and, and come with your small group. And we're gonna do it on Wednesday nights. And it's gonna conclude at the end of July. And I, along with a, a couple of other brothers, I'm teaching the gospel and personal evangelism part of the class. And in the very first day, I'm gonna be giving a lecture on the doctrine of God. You can't understand the gospel and your need for Christ Jesus apart from understanding the character of God. Pastor Sean's taught us this many, many times, right? God is holy. He's set apart. He's different. He's unchanging and he's unapproachable for sinners. And sinful creatures are consumed in his presence and he by no means will clear the guilty according to Exodus 34, 7. Here's the problem, right? We're guilty. We're guilty. And this brings us to another function of the law. The law of God reveals man's sinfulness and need for intervention. Every single person in this room this morning is a transgressor against God. Me especially. And the very familiar passage of Romans 3.23 is enough to sum it up for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And according to Romans chapter one, right, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. And if you don't believe this, all you have to do is turn the news on for just a few minutes, right? Right, it's now illogical to believe that there are only two genders. That's crazy, right? And it's not just outside the church that we worship the creature rather than the creator. As Christians, if we neglect the seriousness of our salvation, which is what Pastor John has been encouraging us to, to contemplate over the last several weeks, we can quickly assimilate ourselves into the culture and begin to compromise the truths of Scripture in an effort to seem more in touch 
or more uh, accepting or more open-minded or more inclusive, right? We, we can buy into the lie that we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously as believers. We need to, to just lighten up. I hear that often. You just need to lighten up. And we certainly bring this type of thinking into our worship when we casually worship the creator of the cosmos. You see, the heart behind our sin, the heart behind all of our sin, the heart behind our idols that we so quickly run to is that we refuse to worship the God who created us and we suppress that knowledge and instead we worship our idols. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Braden and I, my wife and I, uh, we were in uh, New York City and my wife, is a, uh, she was an art history major when she went to college. And uh, you, if you think that I'm a nerd, you should get her talking about uh, Degas or Monet. And I had to do research just to have those two artists in my notes. But, um, but we, uh, we decided to visit some of the art museums while we were there, and she, she showed me all the artwork that she had to, the opportunity to study when she was in school, and, and she gave me the, the background info and, and talked way over my head about some of the stuff that we were looking at, and, but it, it was a blast. But in one particular museum, the Met, um, there was a lot of, of Greek sculpture uh, that dated back to the time of the apostles. And when I was walking through, I couldn't help but to think, man, uh, the Apostle Paul or the disciples, they, maybe they, they, their eyes were on the same sculpture that my eyes are now looking at. You know, that was so neat to, to see something dated back um, to, to the first century church. Uh, and as I look closer at all the, the artwork, I, I began to notice a pattern when I was there. And I, and I, and I told Braden about this when we, when we were there, but almost everything that, that was sculpted or painted or whatnot was, had to do with a god or, or a goddess goddess that was worshiped or, or feared. And we moved from there to African art and there were all these scary masks. And Braden told me that these masks that, that they would wear, and in some cultures they still wear these masks, uh, were to ward off evil spirits. At least they would think it was to ward off evil spirits. And in and, and room after room and display after display, I began to notice that people, no matter how primitive or intellectual, worship something. Who worships something, right? Today, in our confused, genderless society, we pride ourselves in, in being accomplished or intellectual or advanced, and, and we stick our noses up at a, at a culture that, in our opinion, is, is superstitious. However, modern-day society is just as superstitious and confused, right? To say, today's society worships just like other cultures have worshipped. Right? There, there's the worship of success or jobs or money, all good things that have been twisted and elevated above the status of deity. And the culture makes a God of sexual orientation, doesn't it? Inside the church, we have our idols too, right? We take good things and we place them above the worship of God. We may worship our spouse or we may make an idol out of our children. And we certainly have our secret sins that hoping that our, our, our thought life will never be revealed or, or broadcast for, for people to see, right? The bottom line is that the Bible teaches that us that all of us are guilty of exchanging worship for God with worship for the created. So remember, brothers and sisters, this is why we need an advocate, right? This is why we need an advocate. This is why we need another priest, a great high priest, an eternal high priest that offers us a better hope so that we can draw near to God. Amen? Amen. 
So the law is insufficient for salvation and it drives us to our need for Christ. And look with me at this last section and I'll try to speed it along here. It was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and and Sean talked last week about uh, God swearing on his own name. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, this is uh, Psalm 110.4 being ascribed to Christ. Oath in this um, is, uh, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then those for the people's since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made a priest forever. So a few things as I try to wind down here. Jesus is our permanent priest. Jesus is our permanent priest, right? The Greek here, it it, it means something that simply will not change. Something that simply will not change. Isn't that comforting? Right? There are a lot of things um, in life that change. And it, but Christ will not change. His position of high priest will not change. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father willed for Christ to be our permanent great high priest. And this should cause us to, to joyfully worship. Right? This should cause us to enjoy a relationship with him. We don't serve some deistic God who, who created the world and who's watching it crumble from a distance. Right? God is intricately and permanently involved with his creation. He condescended to us by wrapping himself in flesh and dwelling among men. This is the significance of what Sean preached when he covered Hebrews 4, right? Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a comforting passage. Christ passed through the heavens lived a perfect life and he died and rose again and he's permanently interceding on our behalf as believers. Nothing can change this unshakable fact, right? This is election time and we're probably all sick of of hearing about election time. Our culture puts a lot of stock into the next president of the United States. And from a biblical perspective, I want you to remember something when November arrives. Jesus is our permanent high priest and he's interceding on our behalf to God the Father and no creature, no matter how rebellious, is outside the rule and reign of his sovereignty. So the question is, what does Christ's high priestly work consist of? Consist of saving to the uttermost. That means he, Christ, saves forever. Isn't that encouraging? Christ saves forever. You can't lose your salvation. Sean preached an entire sermon on this last week. Salvation was never yours to accomplish and it's not yours to complete. 
Jesus saves completely and perfectly and permanently. It is finished is what he said from the cross. And so some people would say, well, this gives, us a, this, this gives people a license to sin. There's just a couple of comments about that briefly, right? Someone truly converted by the precious gospel and understands the weight of our salvation. Do you think that that person's gonna take sin lightly? Right, the Apostle Paul answers this objection when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How could we who died to sin still live in it? Right, Paul, Paul is saying that those converted by the gospel, they don't go on flippantly sinning. Right? It doesn't mean that we don't sin, but our transgressions against God are followed by conviction and remorse and repentance and the comfort that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? When the Holy Spirit applies the person and work of Christ to your life, it's permanent. That's what saving to the uttermost means, right? And Christ also, he eternally intercedes on our behalf, if you're taking notes, is the, the second part of his priestly work, right? I alluded to this earlier, but Christ is currently interceding on our behalf to God the Father. Jesus exists and ministers forever. And the commentaries that we offer at our cost at the front desk, uh, the uh, author of that commentary, John MacArthur, he says this, the basis of our salvation is Jesus Christ's divine eternality. This causes me to think about the poem that was set to melody in the 90s and we just sang it to open up the service and we're gonna sing it to close out this morning. But it used to be called The Advocate and then it was set to a melody and, and retitled Before the Throne of God Above. But just for a minute, just listen to the lyrics that you Open the service up with singing this morning. This is what it says. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look at him, to look at who? To look at Christ and pardon me. To look at Christ and pardon me. In the concluding part, it says, behold him there, the risen lamb, the perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my savior and my God, with Christ my savior and my God. Right? Because Christ eternally intercedes on our behalf. There's no need to fear, no matter your personal circumstances, no matter the next president of the United States, no matter the rulings of the Supreme Court justice system, no matter this pluralistic culture. As this culture changes, your high priest does not change. He saves to the uttermost and he's presently interceding on your behalf to God the Father so that we can take comfort in Romans 8 when it says, 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he concludes with this, no. In all of these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in closing, because I'm unfortunately way out of time, why can Jesus do this, right? He's unlike the Levitical priest. They died, they were sinful, and their sacrifices did not permanently atone for our sins. And in contrast, Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. His high priestly work was a single act, and it's permanent. The theme of this chapter is the theme of the entire Bible. Jesus is our great high priest, high and lifted up above all, and he's the fulfillment of our precious scripture. Puritan John Bunyan exhorts us, look to Jesus if you have sinned, look to Jesus as an advocate, pleading with the Father for you, look to nothing else, for he knows how and that by himself to deliver you, and he will do it in the way of justice, which is a wonder, and to the shame of Satan, which will be God's glory, and also to your complete deliverance which will be your comfort and salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the great high priest that you've provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that as believers this morning, God, that our identity in you would be strengthened knowing that, um, Lord, that our sins have been cast onto Christ and Christ's righteousness has been cast onto us. Therefore, we stand free and clear in relationship with you. And I pray for the unbeliever in, this, in the room this morning, Lord. I pray the weight of the gospel, the weight of their sin and their need for a savior that your Holy Spirit would, would weigh heavily on them so that they will repent of sin and trust in you, our only, only chance for salvation. And so God, thank you again uh, for what you're doing um, in our lives and thank you for this time we have together. In Christ's name, amen.